Welcome to this episode of the Plant Breeding Stories podcast, where I talk to leading lights in plant breeding, asking what they do, what makes them tick, and what fascinates them about the world of plants. I'm your host, Hannah Senior of PBS International, world leaders in pollination control. We design and produce specialist pollination bags and tents used by plant breeders and seed producers all around the world. And through this, I've been privileged to get a unique perspective on how plant breeding globally affects our diets, farming systems and the environment. I'm excited to share a little of this with you as we meet some of the amazing people who make plant breeding their life's work. Series four will be the last in this podcast, and it has been the most incredible experience to dig into so many different aspects of the plant breeding world, and literally the world. If you're listening to this, you're part of a community that spans the globe from Albania to Zambia, Adelaide, Australia, and Ames, Iowa, to Zurich in Switzerland. Dr. Salvatore Ceccarelli was born in Italy and began his plant breeding career as an academic in Perugia, before an impulse decision set him on a course which defined his career. He spent the next 30 years working with the International Centre for Agricultural Research in the Dry Areas, ICADA, based in Aleppo in Syria. His time there was characterised by his dedication to participatory breeding practices, engaging local farmers in incredibly difficult agricultural conditions to select the best varieties, which often throw up unexpected consequences. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you very much for joining me today, Dr. Salvatore Ceccarelli. Why don't you kick off by introducing yourself and tell me a bit about your background. Well, thank you very much for inviting me and congratulations for the correct pronunciation of my surname, which is uh, quite unusual, I should say. Uh, I started my career as a university professor teaching uh, genetics and plant reading uh, um, uh, in Italy. I grew up in uh, central Italy, uh, where I was born during the Second World War. Then after I finished my first degree at university in central Italy, I moved to Milano. Uh, where I had um, my PhD course in applied genetics. And then I started my uh, university career. Uh, I was reasonably lucky because within six years from my degree, I had what is considered to be a permanent position. Uh, In 1973, I spent one sabbatical in US where I studied genetics in uh, a very prestigious uh, university, North Carolina State University. Uh, And then I I came back to Italy and I was uh, settling uh, down in my uh, university career. And then in 1979, I was attending a conference of the Italian Society of Plant Breeding. And uh, at the closing ceremony, the president of that association complained about the total absence of Italian scientists from the CGIR centers, the International uh, Research Center. And he closed the microphone saying, well, if anybody's interested, just let me know. And in those 20 seconds after he shut down the microphone and came down the aisle, I stood up and I told him uh, I'm interested. And I was not aware that in those 20 seconds I actually changed my life. (laughs) 
a quick decision that changed the direction of, of your career and your life? Well, I, I'm using that example when I'm teaching uh, young students. Um, when I'm comparing our intestinal flora, which is about two kilograms, uh, compared with the average weight of our brain, which is 1.5 kilogram, by telling them, said this uh, decision which comes from inside that do have a certain weight is <laughs> about two kilograms. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like that analogy. <laughs> so let me just go back for a second. You know, you talked about how you had an interest in genetics. Was that always plants? And what specifically interested you in plants? Uh, well, yes, because I did my thesis on plant breeding. At that time, uh, genetics and plant breeding in the Faculty of Agriculture were actually not compulsory subjects. I, I'm not sure why I, I decided to choose uh, plant breeding, but then I decided to have my uh, master thesis on, on plant breeding, and this, it was... Uh, uh, love at first sight. If I, in fact, I consider myself uh, a very lucky person because uh, uh, I always did what I wanted to do. Uh, so you are a very lucky person. You've been able to pursue your interests, and when you've when you've followed your gut, it's taken you in a good direction. So both of those things have been very fortunate for you. Well, I don't want to jump to the end of the of of, of our conversation, but. Uh, um, I've been now retired for uh, almost 16 years, and I remember the reply to the question which was posed to one of my friends. The question was, uh, Miguel, when are you going to retire? And the answer was, uh, you retire from a job, not from a passion. <laughs> there you go. So your plant breeding story is a very international one. You traveled a lot in your university career. And after that, you worked and lived in Syria for many years, which we'll talk about in a bit. But I want to know, did you intend to have a very international career or was it something that happened by chance? Well, somehow I think it is associated with my first scientific interest, which were oral grasses. At that time, one of the leading centers in research in forage grasses was Aberystwyth in Wales. And there was one point in which the University of Perugia in central Italy and Aberystwyth were possibly the leading centers in Europe on forage grasses. So I traveled to Aberystwyth quite often. I think it was because of that international connection that I, I, I travel very often to to US after the first experience for international conferences. Again, uh, I was probably the only one uh, able to speak a decent English. And therefore, this was one of the reasons why I attended several conferences until 1979, where... Uh, uh, because of that reaction uh, to the speech of the president of the uh, Italian Association of Plant Breeding, uh, I was sent for a job interview to India, uh, to Hyderabad, uh, which was the, uh, it still is, uh, the, the headquarters of one of the international centers. You did go to the job interview in Hyderabad, but you didn't really consider taking it. Why was that? When I came back, I was told, even if you offer you a job, don't take it, because we were just told that there is a job which might suit your interest much more closely, and this is in Aleppo, on Syria. So in April 1980, 
uh, I went to Syria for my job interview. It was a fascinating experience. Uh, where Syria at that time was uh, very turbulent because the Muslim brothers uh, were trying to um, overthrow President Assad, the, the father of the current president. And therefore, the Aleppo that I known was a city surrounded by the army with tanks at every corner. But um, I, I, I don't know. I, I, it looks to me that, that this was a normal way of living in Aleppo. See, not, not everybody would choose to take a job in a city that's surrounded by troops. <laughs> Immediately, I had the perception that it was a place in which I could continue to do research at the same level as I was used to doing at university, but at the same time, the possible clients, the possible beneficiaries of my research were just outside the fence. Uh, uh, and therefore, I decided to accept the job. And in September 1980, I moved to Aleppo. I want to pick up on something you just said, that the client or the beneficiary of your work was just over the fence. How was that different from what you were doing in Italy? It's something that perhaps is difficult to explain, but, uh, you know, you do the same work. And if you do it in a university in Italy, you know that you are the, the major beneficiaries. You publish, you become known, you get more funds for research, you get invitation to conferences, and, and, and this continues to, uh, to, to roll. While uh, in that environment, you do exactly the same thing, but you, you, you look outside the fence and say, well, if I'm successful, uh, these, uh, these people will have more feed for their sheep and therefore their livelihood will improve. Mm -hmm. So you did two years of research in Syria with a focus on forage grasses, but then you came back to Italy. Why was that? I went for those first two years uh, with a special arrangement, uh, which uh, I'm not sure that they still exist in Italy. We had a, a law on international cooperation, which allows university professor to be transferred from the Minister of Education to the foreign ministry, and then authorized to do research in a foreign country. Therefore, uh, you stop receiving the salary in Italy. Uh, you will be paid by the receiving institution, but you maintain your position. But that particular arrangement uh, could not be extended over two years unless I change the type of research, which I was not prepared to, uh, to do. But then as soon as I came back to Italy, uh, I remember... Uh, sitting on the balcony of my house uh, in Perugia, waiting for the truck uh, to bring out uh, the goods that we uh, transferred back to Italy and uh, asking myself, uh, what the hell I'm doing here? Oh, OK. So it didn't take long for you to think, oh, have I made the right decision? No, because, you know, you come from that situation where uh, you understand the importance of rainfall, the damage that, you, that drought can do to people, uh, the, uh, the uh, interaction with people coming from many different countries. Uh, and you end up at university where the major topic was... Uh, where are we going to set up the new toilet coming into the university? <laughs> it was very frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> so you had a sense of mission, shall we say, that wasn't being fulfilled in Perugia. <laughs> <laughs> 
But you did return to Syria a few years later and went back to ACADA, um, the International Center for Agricultural Research in the Dry Areas. But you had by then switched your focus from forage grass to barley. So before we go any further, perhaps you can tell me a bit about ACADA. Well, uh, ICADA is one of the um, international research centers belonging to the consortium, of uh, which was under the name of CGIR, which was established as a result of the success of SIMIT, uh, which was uh, a Rockefeller initiative to solve specific problems, the problem of, of rust diseases on wheat in the Yaqui Valley in Mexico um, in, in the 60s. Mexico decided to become self-sufficient um, in wheat. They expanded the, the, the crop in the Yaqui Valley, uh, very warm um, with irrigation. There was a problem of diseases. Uh, they, 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 they fixed the problem. And this was a signal that perhaps is more efficient to do research right in the countries where they needed rather than exporting results of research from other countries. So CIMIT was the first center to be established. Then this was followed by IRRI. ICADA was established in 1976. There was quite a lot of debate uh, where the center should be established. And eventually uh, they chose Aleppo because it was close to important university in the city of Aleppo. For many years, uh, our offices were in the city. Uh, but then there was a donation from the Arab countries uh, to erect uh, all the offices and labs uh, directly in the campus. It was not Damascus, because in Damascus there, there was another inter Arab international center. And you were headquartered in Aleppo, but had research stations in other countries, yeah? We had uh, experimental uh, um, areas in Lebanon, in the uh, Beka Valley, uh, for some time in Cyprus. And, uh, uh, of course, connection with all the other countries where we could use the facilities uh, of ministries, uh, for example, in uh, Jordan, which was uh, very easy to, um, to reach. And when I started, uh, because Barley is the last crop before the desert, uh, I thought that I will need an even drier site. So I asked the Institute to rent about 10 hectares uh, in a place uh, where uh, um, I basically was the only one uh, doing, uh, doing research. This site was very important uh, because it, it was in that particular place interacting uh, with uh, the farmer, looking uh, uh, at the security of the place, so kicking out um, animals when they enter the field, was it my interaction with him that started changing my way of uh, thinking research. You're listening to Plant Breeding Stories, brought to you by PBS International, world leaders in pollination control. We're exploring the personal stories behind people who've dedicated their careers to plant breeding, helping us to more productive plants, greater food security, and more sustainable agriculture. Now, back to the podcast. You were breeding barley for growing in drought-prone areas. Can you give me an idea of how much or perhaps how little rain these areas get? Well, the, the, the fascinating aspect of that area was that you have a drop in rainfall very rapidly in a very short distances. Somebody made a calculation 
that uh, the rainfall was dropping by about 10 millimeters a year every 30 kilometers, which means that from uh, if you start moving from Aleppo, where normally you will receive about 350 millimeter rainfall, is is an area where agriculture is reasonably safe in the sense that there is not a big risk in um, raising a crop. Within 40 kilometers, the, the rainfall drop by 100 millimeters and you get into the 250 rainfall. Now, with 250 rainfall, if it's not well distributed, uh, you may actually miss a crop. Then from there, I move to an area in which you get about 180. Then this is where uh, my heroes were, because if the people farming in those extreme situations will stop farming, then what next? Well, next is the desert. The desert will take over. So they are a sort of of protection for the rest of agriculture, even though they basically rely on something that they cannot control, um, namely the rainfall uh, for, for their life. Wow. It's hard to imagine trying to farm with so little rain. I was still from time to time uh, taking a few weeks from my job at Icarda to give a few lectures in Italy to maintain my position. And I remember it was uh, February, March 1987. And I left Syria where we planted the crop, but until I left, there was no rain. And I remember I was giving exams, so I was uh, exposed to a range of students uh, uh, sitting in front of me, uh, waiting uh, to be admitted to the uh, the oral examination. And then the secretary came with a telex, and the telex was my secretary in uh, Syria saying, we receive 30 millimeter rainfall. And I remember I said, wow! And the students (laughs) were like, what happened? I said, well, we got 30 millimeter rainfall. And you know, in a place where you get uh, 800 millimeter rainfall, they cannot understand (laughs) what 30 millimeter rainfall. And then I realized that I started thinking like the farmers were very happy about the drop of rain. And this connection with the farmers is something that's been quite defining throughout your career. Not only do you engage with the importance of the rainfall, but you also see more of their needs and their risks. And that led you to do participatory breeding work. So how did that come about and how did it change the way that you were working? Well, I was mentioning these 10 hectares that I asked Ricardo to rent to expose the, all the material under selection to a very intense drought. And the, the person who was looking after the field was used to bring me a cup of tea when, I, when he saw me in the field. And in one of these occasions, he was waiting for me to finish a set of observations. And then uh, as I was drinking the cup of tea, he told me, uh, I, I, I never have thought that there are so many different types of barley. I, I, I found uh, normal to ask him, he said, well, can you tell me which one do you like? Uh, and this was, was uh, a big revelation because uh, he, was, uh, he was actually selecting all those that I discarded. 
In other words, you know, I was coming from breeding for a short crop so that you can put a lot of nitrogen, and he was exactly uh, selecting the, the opposite, the, the, the tallest uh, plot. So I asked him, why would you choose this? And so he explained to me, I said, well, look, you know, when we get a drought, the crop becomes very short, so short that not even a combine uh, can harvest it because we have stalls in the field. So if I start from a very tall crop, even if it becomes shorter, it will never be that short that cannot be harvested by combine. And therefore, I will have to harvest by hand, which is much more expensive. And so I decided, I mean, how, how can I continue to do to, to work if I'm not coming in these places and interacting with these guys? And so this was the decision that we took in 1995, uh, so about 10 years after I started the job at ICARB as a battery breeder. And we, st- we, we went out in um, some villages where one of my technicians uh, already knew some farmers, and we started discussing with them uh, what would have been uh, this sort of collaboration. I will bring them uh, a number of varieties, and I will let them to decide which one they thought would be useful in their context. And we started doing this in nine villages, and there was a major um, response uh, by the farmers in terms of, uh, of accepting this sort of interaction. And immediately, they told me, I said, you know, there is a substantial difference in the way we are interacting with you and we are interacting with our scientists from the Minister of Agriculture of Syria, because you are listening to all our requests. And if you, if you do not agree, you tell us. If you agree, this becomes an element of change in the way we are doing research. But our scientists will never do that. They never ask us what is our opinion. And this was uh, the beauty uh, of that relationship, but what was also in the long term what eventually made that sort of relationship very dangerous because it it gave them back a dignity and the self-confidence that their opinion counted. And how did that impact the methods that you used and the varieties that you were producing? There were a lot of implications in, in the methodology because first, uh, we had to reconcile um, how much diversity we bring to the farmers uh, but how much land we could use, uh, because they also need their land for their own purposes. Uh, The second was the actual methodology, because working in a farm field is, is of course, less precise than working on a research station. So we need to refine our experimental design, statistical analysis, to set up a, a, a mode of collaboration. And therefore, there I enter in, in, in a territory uh, in which I did not have uh, a lot of experience, was very useful, for example, uh, in the first couple of years of this relationship uh, to go to these villages with my American colleagues, uh, anthropologists, uh, with a gender specialist, uh, with a social economist, because uh, these people were able, for example, to perceive that during a discussion with 15, 20 farmers, there were only two or three doing all the talking. The other did not dare to talk. So there were 
power relationship within the village that you should consider take into account because if the work was based on considering the collective opinion and not not only the opinion of the people who had the power in the in the village you then you have to set up different meetings so there was all these aspects which of course were completely new compared to the type of work. The, the other important thing is that because of the um, importance of plant height, we start using, for example, the wild progenitor of Badley, which is still widespread uh, in that region. Don't, remember, don't forget that we are talking about the upper part of the Fertile Crescent. So it's an area where you still have the wild relatives of barley, of wheat, of pistachio, of chickpea, of, of lentil. Uh, so it's, it's a treasury of, of germplasm. And in some cases, it's difficult to use the wild relatives because of crossing barriers. In the case of barley, fortunately, uh, the, the crosses are very easy. And therefore, because uh, Hordum spontaneum is able to, to remain very tall, even under very intense drought, we start transferring uh, that attribute to the cultivated barley, and most of our successful varieties in dry areas had autumn spontaneum, the wild progenitor, uh, as one of the parents. And what about disease resistance? Were you breeding for that? Well, the problem was with diseases was that the, the humidity was so low uh, that diseases were, disease pressure was not very, um, very high. The other trait which was very important was straw quality. Uh, in fact, one of the, our surprise when farmers start going through all these different types of barley was that they put their hands inside the pot and they tasted the, the, the straw. So you see, this this was another drastic change because in industrial agriculture, logic resistance, therefore strong straw is very important. But in in, in that context, because the crop is almost entirely fed to sheep, and because the nutritional value of straw is low, what counts is how much you eat, and how much you eat it depends how palatable it is. And of course, their ideal crop under 200 to 250 millimeter rainfall was a crop which will fall flat in the 350 millimeter rainfall of the recession. So uh, all this, their selection would have been discarded regularly in the recession. And so this, this was a major uh, achievements in transferring all the research with, with the same scientific sort of precision. In, in fact, we continue to publish, uh, and we became well known for, for that work, which is still um, widely um, cited um, today. And, and just going back to the point that you made about um, it encouraging the people that you're working with, the farmers, to feel more confident in voicing their opinions and having their opinions heard. Can you expand on that for me? Because you said it became dangerous. Um, so so how, what were the implications of that? I, I should have understood this when farmers were telling me, I said, you know, all this work is very interesting for us because uh, um, it gives us varieties uh, uh, which are more productive so we can uh, better feed our sheep, we get better income. But even more importantly is that we feel change as person because we now are no longer 
a person who from time to time you get the uh, technician, the scientists who are telling us what to do, but we know that our opinion counts. And therefore, we feel that we are different people when we go to offices, when we interact with authorities. We know that our opinion counts. And of course, in, in, in many political systems, uh, this uh, sort of self-confidence uh, is not well uh, accepted. And we had two episodes, one in uh, Syria and one in uh, Iran, almost uh, at the same time, uh, we're talking about 2007. In the case of Iran, it was only one province in which I was told that I was not welcome. And in the case of Syria, uh, the Minister of Agriculture wrote, wrote a letter to the director of ICADA, director general of ICADA, saying that the work that I was doing was a threat to the uh, food security of the country. And therefore, because uh, up to that point, I mentioned before that we started with nine villages, but with the support of the Minister of Agriculture, their staff, their machinery, their research station, we expanded to 24 villages, so covering all Syria. And as a consequence of that letter was that the uh, support of the ministry was withdrawn. And therefore, I had to explain to farmers the reason why we had to scale down. It was not a matter of financial support. It was a technical support. Well, I had one technician, uh, one vehicle, and I could not cover 24 um, villages. Farmers were, were horrified by the letter because I made copies, of course, of the letter. So they wanted to organize a march to Damascus in front of uh, uh, to the Minister of Agriculture. And then I, I told them better better not to do that if they want me to stay in the country. And in fact, I, I stay in the country eventually. I had to scale down that work. But then, uh, together with my wife, because we have been sharing all, the, all this, uh, we thought about a different way of making farmers uh, self-sufficient in terms of seed and uh, of managing diversity. And that's why we came back with this uh, not, not our idea, but we, we actually used this idea, which was already going around since a long time, of using evolutionary populations and mixtures. You mentioned that you were working with your wife at that time. Did you encounter many issues with having women in the field and in your research teams? The inclusion of women was a particularly complex issue in Syria. In Jordan, there was no problem in having women come to the field and very often uh, they had a different uh, perception of what to select. And uh, um, while in Syria, um, it was only after a young female PhD student decided to uh, take the issue of women participation as her PhD uh, thesis uh, that we uh, found a way of involving also Syrian uh, women. And I know you retired and your wife took over the role of manager around the time of the conflict starting. How did that pan out? Uh, the philosophy of the, of the program, of course, did not change, uh, but the gender of the manager changed. And this, unfortunately, made, unfortunately for my wife, made a lot of difference. So she was really under a lot of pressure, a lot of discrimination, and uh, in 2010, this was before the conflict, before the conflict started in 2011, but in December 2010, my wife resigned. So physically, we left in after the conflict started, but the decision was taken before the conflict. 
So our decision has no relationship with the conflict. You've both left Syria now, but the conflict is ongoing and there's been so much upheaval in Syria, particularly in Aleppo. Do you know what's happened to the research centre since you left? Well, unfortunately, the Institute decided to decrease their involvement in participatory plan reading. Since we left, we never came back. We know that some of the, the farmers have to move in other areas. We, we still have some contacts through Facebook or WhatsApp. What was very interesting is, uh, you know, you are calling a person who comes from 10 years of war in his country, and you would expect that the first thing that he will tell you is that he's safe, that his family is good. But the guy, the first thing that he told me, I said, Dr. Salvatore, I'm still planting the seed that we selected together. And I mean, knowing the Syrian farmers, I believe that unless they are prevented to do so, um, they still use that seed because there was, because you know, the way in which we interacted, that seed is no longer Dr. Ceccarelli's seed. It's their seed because they selected. So through all the upheaval, the genetic legacy has been maintained. That's great. Yeah, but they, 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 I mean, that people have a level of resilience, which is unbelievable. We're running out of time, but wrapping up, I have one last question. You've spent a large part of your career working towards creating resources for very low-income countries in very difficult growing conditions. How has this changed your perspective over the years? I'm able to see how all these problems actually have always the seed at the centre. And therefore, the issue of who owns the seed is becoming crucial. The root of this problem is that if somebody has the seed in his hand, everything else depends on him. Uh, what we eat, what type of agriculture, um, how we are going to cope with climate change. But if that seed becomes a different seed in the hands of uh, all the farmers, uh, is probably the, the, the cheapest and the more efficient weapon that we have. I'm not sure whether I... I, I continue my life in the academia where I would have been able to see all these uh, connection between all different problems which seems to be uh, disconnected. Unfortunately, very often are discussed as if they were separated problems. But it's so difficult to convince people that uh, at the me- in the center of all this problem is the seed. That feels like a great place to leave it. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been a fascinating conversation. Dr. Salvatore Ceccarelli. You've been listening to Plant Breeding Stories by PBS International, and I'm your host, Hannah Senior. Plant breeding is a pretty specialist podcast topic, which can make it difficult for people who share our interest in this kind of thing to find it. So if you've enjoyed the podcast, recommend it to your friends and colleagues, and please help others in the plant science community to find it by rating this episode and subscribing to the series. I'd love to hear from you if you want to suggest people you'd like me to interview. You can contact me on Twitter at PBSint or on Instagram at PBS underscore Int. Until next time, stay well. <laughs>